Where are you, God? I remember the first time I asked this question. I was just a boy. In my church tradition growing up, we believed that Jesus' death on the cross not only paid the price for human sin, but it also paid the price for our physical healing. And if we only had enough faith, we could access right now the perfect healing that Jesus died for. This tradition is often called the Word of Faith movement by those in it and the Prosperity Gospel by those outside it. So when our pastor's sister was diagnosed with cancer, each of us in the church threw all the faith we had into trying to claim that healing for her. I remember going to prayer meetings as a kid where we had a script of faith confessions to speak out over her to tap into that reservoir of healing power we all believed we had legal spiritual access to as believers in Jesus. As a boy, this all made some degree of sense, and the incredible stories of healing claimed by TV faith televangelists like Benny Hinn and Oral Roberts only bolstered the credibility of our beliefs. If this strategy worked for Benny Hinn, why not for us? The problem was that it started to seem like our faith wasn't enough. Her condition steadily worsened. While the medical attention in the hospital intensified, our family started having her son come and stay with us. One day, my mom and dad pulled me and my younger siblings aside and told us that the boy's mom had just died and that his dad was coming to our house to pick him up and deliver the news that no boy should ever have to hear. I remember sitting on the living room couch in our small one-story house in a blue-collar suburb on the edge of Detroit. The sofa couldn't have been more than three steps from the front door. The boy's father, who stood at least six foot four, carried an immeasurable sorrow on his face. He took his son by the hand and led him about five steps across the living room and into the shared bedroom of my brother and me to tell the young boy what no father should have to tell his son. They closed the door and I sat there on the couch and waited. Where are you, God? I don't remember how long they were in there, but I don't recall it being a long time. It was quiet, no sorrowful wailing, just silence. When they emerged, I don't remember seeing tears on their faces. Maybe there was, but all I remember was the quiet. They walked towards the door. The father said something to my parents. Then they got in their cars and drove home. The experience didn't devastate my young faith, but in the following weeks, I remember the question shifting from, where are you, God, to, where were you, God? Sometimes I would listen to the conversations the adults in our church quietly had after service about their own where were you, God, questions. The theological framework of our particular tradition didn't leave them with many options other than different variations of, maybe she really didn't have enough faith to be healed. I even heard some adults talk about the book of Job and how what happened to Job was because Job had secret fears, and if you're in fear, then you can't be in faith. That idea seemed terrifying. How can I not be afraid if my secret fears might bring about Job-like suffering? Now I'm afraid of my fears. As I got into my early adult years, a string of suffering-inducing events pushed me to reassess the faith I had received. From my vantage point, the faith I had received was the Christian faith. We were proudly full gospel, as opposed to those Baptists down the street who must have had only 50% of the gospel. And we were spirit-filled. We had the real thing. and. Everyone else had man-made religious traditions that polluted the truth of the Bible. Now at this point, some of you may be saying out loud, you thought you had the real Christian faith? You guys were a prosperity gospel church. Yet, 
I suspect many of you possibly had the same dispositions towards other Christian denominations and theological traditions outside of your tribe. There are various problems with this kind of attitude, but one of the practical ways this sort of ecclesiology becomes particularly problematic is when you brush up against profound questions that you feel have not been answered well in your church or denomination. This leaves you feeling as if you've exhausted the well of resources available to followers of Jesus. When the tradition you've inhabited appears to you to be the definitive standard of what Christianity is, and your theology can't adequately address the questions you're grappling with, it is not abnormal to feel like you have to leave the Christian story and Christian community for better answers. But I don't think you do. Maybe like a younger version of me, you just need to discover a broader Christian perspective. Perhaps you need to see that there could be some blind spots or even flat-out hurtful theological ideas in the version of the Christian story you've received. You need not throw out every good thing you've received from your theological tradition in order to open yourself up to the breadth and depth of available resources in the historic, global Christian tradition. And we need every available resource at our disposal when it comes to grappling with questions about evil and suffering. Because few things call into question the story we believe about God, the world, and our place in it all, quite like an experience of unexplained suffering or evil. That was an excerpt from the introduction of my new book, Disordered, A Christian Journey Through the Problem of Evil and Suffering. And in today's episode, with this new book being released last week, what I thought I would do is kind of give you a podcast version of an audiobook. And I wanted to read for you the first chapter of Disordered. You know, I was just thinking about this morning how we've come out of this, well, we've heard the term probably ad nauseum, these unprecedented times. We've, we've just experienced this global pandemic, incredibly, uh, maybe even historically divisive political season in U.S. history. Um, I know it doesn't surpass the Civil War. (laughs) I know, you know, assassinations of sitting presidents, you know, in the case of JFK or Abraham Lincoln have been worse times, but these have been difficult times. And one of the unique things about this pandemic, maybe, maybe unique, especially in comparison when we think about, you know, a war like World War II, is when we got done with World War II, there were treaties that were signed. There was parades and celebrations, a time of closure of that war, for that war, I should say, in the streets. And, and I don't think we're ever going to get that with this pandemic. COVID is likely um, going to be around forever, uh, or at least for the foreseeable future, I should say. And because of that, I don't think we've ever gotten a chance to say, you know what, this has come to some point to final conclusion, and now we're going to reflect, we're going to mourn, we're going to process our questions. And heading into the fall, um, you know, there, there's certainly still cases <laughs> happening. I don't want to dismiss that. Um, but I think we've moved out of wartime into hopefully some sort of version of peacetime. And part of the reasoning for me wanting to release this book at this particular time was to give people the blessing to process some of the questions that I have undoubtedly emerged in our minds and our hearts as we've seen so much natural evil. Yes, human moral evils of all sorts of all sorts and kinds, but you know, COVID was unique in that it 
presented to many people who are not regularly accustomed to thinking about natural evil. Maybe they've enjoyed a relatively healthy life. Maybe they live in a neighborhood uh, or a place in the world that, that's relatively free of you know, hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, you know, the sorts of natural disasters that we traditionally have labeled natural evils. And, and because of maybe a, an absence from this being a regular feature of life, we don't always wrestle with it in the same way we might wrestle with it if we experienced a human moral evil. But this, this opportunity, I hate to call it an opportunity, that's, that's not a positive word for it, this, this tragedy, which is really what it is, this tragedy that we've all endured has afforded us an opportunity for reflection on the nature of God's goodness, his will, evil, suffering. And so part of my hope in releasing the book at this time was to maybe give people heading into the fall an opportunity to step back, to take some time, and to reflect. Certainly, you've got the entire podcast series you can go back and listen to. Um, I've tightened up that material in a way that I think is pretty substantial for this, for this book. But what I wanted to do is to read for you the introductory chapter. And um, I should say, though, the first chapter, I read for you already an excerpt from the introduction. And if you picked up the book, please, I know sometimes I skip the introduction of books and just head right to chapter one. Please don't skip the introduction. Of course, you heard that story Um, And I, I share a little bit more about what has driven and motivated me to write this book. But we're going to start today. I'm going to read for you um, chapter one uh, from Disordered, A Christian Journey Through the Problem of Evil and Suffering. Of course, it's available on Amazon now. Uh, I'm not advertising. Um, You know, we've got some really great endorsements from people like uh, Russell Moore, editor-in-chief of Christianity Today, Matthew J. Thomas, a Catholic theologian at Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology. Um, boy, some other great friends like, like Kenneth Tanner and Bonnie Christian, um, but we've published this all in-house, and so uh, I don't have an advertising budget, so if you find that as you're listening to this, you want to go pick up the book, share it with a friend, buy a copy with a friend, leave a review. If you find this helpful, um, you can amplify the helpfulness that way. So without further ado, I want to get into reading for you this, uh, this, in- this, this first chapter from Disordered, A Christian Journey Through the Problem of Evil and Suffering. And again, uh, you can find a link in the description where you can pick up this book if you're so interested. Chapter 1. What makes the problem of evil a problem? Several years ago, I found myself sharing in a moment of anguished prayer with a couple who had just lost their child. I will never forget the cries of grief that poured out of the mother that day, nor will I forget the funeral in the week that followed. Caskets should not be built that small. This wasn't the first time I had seen a tiny casket, but that never makes it any easier. Though every death brings with it an experience of grief, some deaths feel more explainable than others. I don't find myself overcome by questions when the lifelong chain smoker comes down with lung cancer and dies. I feel grief, but I don't have as many questions about causality. Sitting at this funeral, I felt that old haunting question well up within my soul. Where are you, God? It's the question I asked when the boy I mentioned in the introduction lost his mother. It is the question I asked when I watched the World Trade Center towers collapse on live television in 2001. It's a question I asked when a tsunami devastated Southeast Asia just a few years later, killing hundreds of thousands. 
It is the question I asked the first time I spent a few nights in the ICU at the children's hospital with my son and saw bald children from chemotherapy treatments living in the hospital as if it were their home. It is a question we all likely asked as the world descended into uncertainty and chaos in 2020 as the coronavirus spread. Questions about God, evil, and suffering have not only perplexed even the most committed Christians, causing many to abandon their faith, but these questions also act as some of the most significant barriers to faith for the atheist and earnest spiritual seeker alike. Questions about the problem of evil are no mere abstract philosophical conundrum relegated to a university lecture hall or an academic theological journal. No, the questions that emerge in our experiences of tragic loss and suffering are the tangible, lived questions of theology and philosophy that strike us at the very core of our being and threaten our sense of meaning and purpose in the world. Though these discussions sometimes descend into a seemingly distant realm of philosophical abstraction, we mustn't be afraid of theology or philosophy if we're going to address these questions well. Whether we are aware of it or not, these disciplines are foundational to our efforts to find meaning in the world. Because of this, we will want to work through them thoughtfully and with intellectual curiosity. As a somewhat silly illustration of this point, try this fun experiment sometime. Remember that old party game some people called Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, where you had to think of a seemingly unrelated celebrity and trace their relational connections back to the actor Kevin Bacon? What you surprisingly uncovered in that game was that most anyone you could think of was only six relational steps away from knowing Kevin Bacon. As innocuous and asinine as that game seemed, it opened you up to seeing how relationally connected we all are to others we thought we shared nothing in common with. Well, there's a fun little variation of that kind of game that can help you see how necessary a discipline like philosophy truly is. Look up a random word on Wikipedia. Click the first available link in the description that isn't a pronunciation-related link. Then, wherever that link takes you, do the same thing again with that word. Repeat enough times, and you will eventually get to philosophy. I like basketball, so I did this experiment by starting with a Wikipedia search for LeBron James. I mean, there's no way NBA superstar LeBron James has any relevant connection to philosophy, right? I got to philosophy in six clicks, so don't be afraid of philosophy or theology. LeBron James depends on it. You and I are not alone in our questions. Even if your particular church experience has made you feel like hard questions aren't welcome, I can tell you that Christians throughout the ages have wrestled with just about every question that could enter your mind. There are endless volumes of written evidence out there to prove it, too. I bring that up not only as some sort of consolation or as a license to ask questions for those who've simply never been given permission, but also as an encouragement to not deal with your profound questions alone on some solitary, internal island of your thoughts. My encouragement to you instead is to try and exhaust every available resource that Christians past and present have produced to find better solutions to the questions that perplex you, and do it in a community with others. I hope that this book can be one of those resources. Obviously, it's not just Christians who wrestle with questions about God, evil, and suffering. However, for the purposes of this book, we're going to primarily focus on how differing Christians have responded to the problem of evil. In fact, a Greek philosopher living approximately 300 years before Christ's birth named Epicurus 
may have best presented the fundamental question about God, evil, and suffering when he asked, quote, Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? End quote. Though we may lack the rhetorical skills of an Epicurus necessary to distill all of our questions about God, evil, and suffering down to such a succinct and profound summarization, doesn't this provocation from Epicurus truly get at the heart of all of our questions about evil and suffering? After all, if God is truly all-powerful, he could just decide to eradicate coronavirus, cancer, war, and famine right now at this very moment, couldn't he? If one answers, Yes, of course. You're left with the uncomfortable counterpoint of, well, why hasn't he stopped every instance of suffering or evil in creation then? Does that mean that he's just not willing to? If one responds, no, of course. He doesn't want terrible things to happen. God is good, and he never wills for evil. Then the question circles back around to, So if he doesn't want evil to happen, but evil happens, aren't you saying he just can't do anything to stop it? Of course, entangled within those questions are other layers of questions about the purpose of prayer, God's love and power, Satan and spiritual beings, free will and predestination, on and on the questions go. Some people may prefer to quietly stuff these questions away deep in some closet space in their mind, while others may become so discouraged by their questions and often the unhelpful answers the people in their lives have given them, that they just throw in the towel on God altogether. I don't believe either one of these responses are helpful. Eventually, that dark closet in your mind will get too full, and all the questions will spill out. Grief often has a funny way of doing that to us. Leaving the Christian story for some other religious tradition isn't going to make these questions go away either. Considering leaving the Christian story to become, say, a Muslim to get away from these questions? Sorry, they're wrestling with the problem of evil too. What about Buddhism? Good luck. Now, I think the Buddha had a decent bit of practical wisdom to share. But when the Buddha teaches that behind it all is sunyata, or emptiness, I don't find that to be a more compelling or helpful answer. Maybe just throw it all out and become a Rick Sanchez-styled selfish nihilist, or... Tyler Durden for the old millennials and Gen Xers. They might make for some dark and twisted on-screen laughs. Even that point is debatable. But no one wants to be around those people in real life. As I regularly counsel people considering leaving the Christian story and Christian community because of their unanswered questions, you should make sure you get to know what you're leaving first before you go. Your particular church experience and theological tradition is just a tiny part of the larger whole of Christianity. It may even be a distorted view at that. Don't confuse your particular church experience with all that the Christian story and Christian community has to offer. There's more to explore. Any effort to try and address these questions and formulate a response is doing what theologians and philosophers often call theodicy. The term theodicy comes from a 17th, 18th century mathematician, theologian, and philosopher named Gottfried Leibniz who we'll explore more of in chapter 11. Leibniz constructed the word theodicy by using the Greek prefix theo, meaning God, and the suffix dike, meaning justice, 
to create a term that describes philosophical or theological efforts to defend God's goodness and justice in the face of evil and suffering. These days, theodicy can broadly refer to anything having to do with the problem of evil. For better or worse, there hasn't been a singular, univocal response in Christianity to the problem of evil. No one theodicy to rule them all. What makes it even harder is that when we open our Bible to look for a biblical theodicy, we find what sometimes seems like conflicting answers to our questions. For example, there are no direct mentions of demons anywhere in the Old Testament. But then as we jump into the New Testament, we find Jesus performing exorcisms all over the Gospels. With that in mind, what should we do when a loved one comes down with a painful disease? Do we interpret it as something coming from God, like God's curse on David's son Absalom in 2 Kings 12? Or as some kind of evil attack of Satan, like the woman who had been crippled for 18 years in Luke 13? Is there a third, well, sometimes random bad stuff just happens category we need to consider? Bring this question to the pastor at the local Reformed church, and then go over to the pastor at the charismatic church down the street, and you'll probably get two wildly different answers. So how are you ever supposed to figure out who's right about the Bible? A couple of tools at our disposal can help us sift through this dilemma. First, we can learn to consult vetted scholars of the Bible from a variety of traditions. Scholars who do more than just give their perspectives on difficult biblical passages, but show their work so you can compare and evaluate their processes. Second, we can mine the theological depths of the broad, historic, and global Christian community and compare their answers together to see if we can find any reoccurring threads that might shed light on some answers to our tough questions. The Apostle Paul wrote that we all see in part as if we're looking at a reflection in an ancient mirror. And ancient mirrors weren't as clear as the mirrors we have today. Part of seeing a more complete picture on this side of glory comes by comparing what others believe to have seen as they look into the scriptures. To do this comparative analysis well, there's also some work that we must allow the Spirit of God to do in our hearts and minds. We cannot consult the scriptures with our minds already made up on what the answers are to our questions. Rather, we have to humbly step into the world of the ancient author that God vested his communicative authority upon and realize that some of our questions might not even be anywhere on that inspired author's radar to address specifically. For example, we might wrestle with a question about why God would allow the dinosaurs to go extinct some 65 million years ago. If we go looking for answers about dinosaurs in Genesis, we will be horribly disappointed. The ancient author of Genesis, who is writing to an ancient Near Eastern people, just isn't going to have pressing questions about dinosaurs that need to be addressed. Based on the available historical evidence we have today, we can confidently say that ancient Israelites didn't even have any idea that T-Rexes and Stegosauruses ever existed. We'll talk more about that in chapter 13. We don't go into a production of Shakespeare's Macbeth expecting there to be Marvel superheroes showing up in the play. We go into Macbeth expecting to see a rendition of the story that Shakespeare told, and we must do the same thing when we immerse ourselves into the world of the Bible. The Bible may still be for us today, but it isn't written directly to us. Just like how properly attending a Shakespeare play would require that I humbly open myself up to their old English language and customs in order to understand the story correctly, I need to humbly allow the Bible to speak in its own contextual terms. Before we begin our investigation of the biblical literature for answers, we need to establish some important terminology that will be used throughout the book. First, 
When working through the problem of evil, theologians and philosophers often distinguish between two kinds of evil. The first kind of evil is what we can call moral evil. Moral evil typically refers to the types of evil perpetrated by conscious moral agents through the misuse of their will. When terrorists hijacked the planes that eventually crashed in the World Trade Center buildings on 9-11, we could more easily point to a discernible causal connection than when a small child comes down with an incurable disease. The simplest explanation for a horrific tragedy of moral evil like 9-11 is that human moral agents misused their free will to bring unjust suffering and death upon others. As simple as that explanation may sound, the follow-up questions about moral evils are still incredibly difficult. Why didn't God stop the hijackers? What about the husband who prayed for his wife's protection as she went off to work in downtown New York that morning, only to discover later that day that his wife died in the rubble. Why weren't his prayers answered? Why do humans even have the possibility within our free will to do such terrible things at all? If God didn't choose to stop that kind of evil, why should we? Explanations from why moral evils happen aren't that easy after all. The COVID-19 pandemic has made us all familiar with another evil, one that is usually designated as a different category from moral evils. These evils are often called natural evils. Natural evils are typically understood as suffering-inducing events perpetrated by nature and not directly by human moral agents. Though there certainly is robust debate about the possible ways human and spiritual agents, such as angels or Satan, may influence nature, most would recognize that there should still be some categorical distinction between a tsunami that kills hundreds of thousands of people and a genocidal dictator who may have accumulated a similar body count. At times, natural evils can provoke even more challenging questions about God than moral evils. Preventing an individual's moral evil, or at least knowing who to hold accountable immediately, seems like it is much more within our control than a hurricane, a pandemic, or a debilitating genetic condition. Generally speaking, living things like to stay alive. As humans, we have an incredible array of defense mechanisms intended to keep us alive. At least some significant portion of our efforts to sort through questions about evil is driven by a desire to determine a causal pattern behind the things that could threaten our lives. Determining the causal pattern behind natural evils has not always been easy. Science has been such a valuable discipline for helping us find the causal mechanisms that would induce natural evils. As hard as it is to believe today, there was a time when people did not understand that smoking three packs of cigarettes a day would probably give you lung cancer. We used to put leeches on the sick to drain their blood, hoping to suck the sickness out. Sometimes humans don't properly understand the difference between causation and correlation, and sometimes we just can't figure out a clear causal explanation at all. In the absence of a clear causal explanation, what do we do? Well, historically, Humans in the ancient world of the Bible were far more apt to look for spiritual causes for natural evils, though they wouldn't have necessarily had a categorical distinction between material and spiritual like modern Westerners do. This often led cultures to develop a pantheon of gods who controlled various elements of the natural world. Experiencing a famine? There's a god behind that who you had better make happy quickly. Blighted with some sort of pestilence that kills your cattle? Yep. There's a God for that too. Most of Israel's neighbors, and even Israel at times, thought that the world worked just like their farming. 
plant seeds, give water and sunlight, follow the right steps, and you'll get your desired crop fairly consistently. I mean, it is pretty amazing how that works. Until it doesn't. What do you do then? Have you missed a step somewhere in the equation, or have you upset one of the gods? This is the approach that most of the neighboring cultures surrounding ancient Israel took as a response to their experiences of suffering in the world. And it is within this ancient context that the Old Testament book of Job is set. If we're to use the book of Job to help us make sense of our questions about God, evil, and suffering, we will need to step into their ancient context and understand what it meant to that ancient audience first. Well, I want to thank you all for listening to today's episode and this special reading of chapter one from Disordered, A Christian Journey Through the Problem of Evil and Suffering. Those of you who participated in the early pre-order and made this book happen, um, those are starting to get shipped out already. Some of you have already received them. Uh, if you received uh, your copy, you know what? Take a picture of it and post it on your social media feed. If you're on Instagram or Twitter and you share that with me, I will reshare it with others. Um, the rest of you, thanks for picking it up on Amazon. Um, you can do Kindle or a paperback edition. For those of you that participate in the early pre-orders or you're a Patreon supporter at the Theology 201 level or higher, we are having our first discussion group about the book where we're going to go through and do some chapter-by-chapter -chapter group discussion. Um, and that first group meeting on Zoom is going to happen on September 28th. It's a Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Central. If you want to participate in that and you didn't sign up for the early pre-order, that's all right. You can just be get involved on Patreon, become a Theology 201 level supporter higher, and that also give you access to all the other Zoom groups that we do together and some other perks as well. My final request is to ask of you who have picked up the book and are finding it helpful if you could leave a review on Amazon. I don't need it to inflate my ego. It has nothing to do with it. I feel good about the book, Whoever, and if you do, great. If you don't, that's also okay, too. The reason why I'm asking you to share a review is that Amazon's algorithm looks for books that have more reviews, and those that have more reviews, have more um, ratings on Amazon, are more likely to be suggested via the algorithm to people who are maybe looking for a book on this subject matter, or they you know, maybe uh, read theology or philosophy. So if you do that, uh, it increases the likelihood that someone else is going to discover the book as well. And again, that's only if you find the book to be helpful. If you read it and you go, this is the worst thing I've ever read, obviously, you know, don't leave a review. Or if you feel like you need to re leave that review, that's, that's okay too. Um, but if you're finding it helpful and you're like, man, I think other people would find this helpful too. Leaving a review is just a simple way for that to... Um, that the, the likelihood of that to, to increase. Finally, I want to just give an extra special thanks to you as listeners. This would not have happened. This book would not have happened without your engagement with the podcast, without your questions that provoked me to do that Problem of Evil series, without those of you who reached out during and after that series to be like, write a book, Paul. Um, you have co-shaped this together with me. And a very special thanks to those who have been supporting on Patreon, who are regularly participating in those discussion forums, and when we have Zoom meetings, group discussions together. Um, I so deeply value our connection uh, and the real genuine friendships I've built with some of you. Uh, it's been incredibly meaningful, and your encouragement to do this book, uh, I don't think I would have done it without that. 
I want to give an extra special thanks to those who are supporting in the Theology 201 group or higher. People like Taylor, Stephen, Sarah, Sam, Rob, Paul Spencer, Paul Reese, Mike Thomas, Michael Hernstein, Matthew, Luke, Lola, Kirk, Justin, Josie, Johnny, John Mark, Jesse, Elise, Eli, Dave, Daniel, BJ, Alex, and Jesse. Thank you all for your generous support. I can't do it without you. I hope you all will be able to participate in the uh, kind of book club, whatever we want to call this thing, book club, discussion group. I'm really looking forward to those times together. Again, September 28th, it's uh, Wednesday night, 7 p.m. Central. Mark your calendars. Hope to see you there. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.